We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 309. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Uh, glad you're here. The whole gang's here. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Uh, Hamilton's Economic Development Office has partnered with Fundica, an artificial intelligence-powered search engine that allows local businesses to find grants and other funding for free. The goal is to see that local businesses now have a fast and unique way of getting these funding, uh, getting funding for their ideas. Jennifer Patterson with us, Manager, Business, Investment, Sector Development, City of Hamilton's Economic Development Team, and with us now. Jennifer, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you for inviting me. And yes, very well. Thank you very much. So what is Fundica? What is this exactly, this, this outfit? Well, it's, it's a tool that companies can use to search for funding um, that would support their business to help them grow and expand successfully in, in, their, in their endeavors. And so I think when companies need a tool sometimes, and sometimes it's hard to find out all those uh, funding streams that may be available to their company. So this tool makes it easier for them. So it's something we do to support our um, businesses. And how did, and and when you're talking about streams of funding, give us some examples. Well, there could be in the, in the tool, it actually puts, so a company would input their information um, and what they're looking for. And what it does is it pulls all potential funding opportunities that would be available to that company and the, and the, under the pilot of the project they're working on. So it could be anywhere from, federal funding and programming to HR support programming through provincial funding, through even some of our local um, uh, incentive programs that we may have available will be pulled up. And so they, they can see everything that may be applicable to their company to support them. So would this be, obviously, this is government funding. These are, these are grants at various levels of government may offer yes. you, whether it's municipal, uh, provincial, federal level, to help you get started. So there's no real, there's no private investment in this, for uh, Um There uh, may for be example. some more, like, a, yeah, well, I would say it's more, like, there could be some bank programs out there, but more, it's more government funding, for sure. Would, it's hard would, to, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, sometimes it's hard for companies to, find the time to search for available funding options. So I think this is an easy tool um, and really it takes no time at all to submit your information and get the abstract of what may be available to them. So I think sometimes it's companies are so busy, they, they can't see the trees for the forest. And so sometimes these types of tools are, ha- are helpful for them uh, to understand what may be available to them to be successful. Would, bi- would businesses be surprised how much help there is out there that they just, again, as you're saying, don't know about? Um, I, I think so. In in some respects, I think I, I know some companies do use or they they may um, hire consultants or what have you to help them search for um, different programs. But I think it depends on the size of the company and what they're doing. I, I mean, this is available to all sizes, which is really important as well. Um, and I think maybe for some smaller businesses, they may not have the, the means or the nowhere to find this type of information. And so this is to me, is really what will help them to do that. How did the city get involved in this? Well, we actually partnered with them um, to provide this tool. And actually, it's interesting because we're actually in the in the process of finishing up our manufacturing strategy. And this is a, a lot of manufacturers ask for this type of support. So it actually speaks well to the work we do on business retention expansion. So, of course, 80% of the work that our team does is, to, is there to support businesses in our community. And so I think this tool... And we came across this tool. We thought it made made sense. And so we're looking at it as a pilot for the next probably one to two years and see how it works. Um, So far, I think we've been we've heard some success in it in terms of companies utilizing it, but it's early days. So we'll see how it rolls out. Other uh, municipalities, jurisdictions doing uh, this sort of thing? I believe there may be one. I think we're the only municipality in Ontario to offer this service. For business, um, I'm, I believe in, in maybe in Quebec, there may be one or two that are looking at it. And how are people becoming aware of this? How would you even realize that this is something that is available to you? 
Well, through our great research and marketing team, we actually have it available through our newsletter. We're doing a lot using a lot of social media and events like today. And so thank you for allowing us to talk a little bit about this and to promote it. Um, it's really a lot of what we're doing and, and even our business development consultants getting out to, and talking to companies and offering um, and providing this information to them to make them aware of what, what this may, how this may help them. And you said this was a trial. So this is a work in progress. Uh, it may take various uh, uh, avenues a- after this. It's, it, it's going to continue to evolve. We're, it's a pilot for us. So for this year and potentially for, for the next year following. So we're going to see how this tool interacts um, and how our companies, how it's get picked, how it gets utilized um, and the successes. So we will keep track of that over the course of the year. All right, Jennifer, people want to find out more about this. If you're a business wondering uh, how this could help you, what do we do? Go to investinhamilton.ca and you can find a link into that program. All right, Jennifer Patterson with us, Manager, Business Investment and Sector Development, City of Hamilton's Economic Development Team, uh, a new uh, tool, Fundica, which allows various businesses to find uh, any funding that may be available to them moving forward. Jennifer, good luck with this moving forward. Thank you so much. City of Hamilton's Anything is Possible on Barton Project was selected for the My Main Street Community Activator Program to activate storefronts with local public art in the Barton Village Business Improvement Area. You might remember we talked about this before. Anything is Possible on Barton storefront activation will animate a series of vacant storefronts along Barton Street. Uh, these pop-up windows will share the story of the community and cultivate its identity, uh, culture, values, that sort of thing. So this is a great idea. And now they've been recognized. Jessica Myers with us, Executive Director, Barton Village Business Improvement Area, and with us now. Jessica, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. And you, of course, well. So, yeah, thanks so much. So this is great because I think we talked about this before and you were shooting for this or, or uh, you know, well, I think you were making the decision to do this on your own. How did this whole idea come up, come about uh, of the Anything is Possible on, Bro- um, on Barton Project? Yeah, um, I can't remember when we last chatted about this. I think it was when we put the call out for artists. And so, that's when it was. Uh, that's right. And so, the, yeah, the city of Hamilton sort of applied for this on our behalf. As you know, Barton Street, we have a high number of vacancies on the strip, um, and we would like to change that. And in the interim, until you know, we get these businesses in, you know, what can we do with these vacant storefronts? And so, the My Main Street Community Activator Program is sort of was put in place as sort of like a placemaking initiative to provide funding for these types of projects. And so, I worked with the city to you know come up with a plan to put a call out. We developed some themes that sort of focus solely on Barton Street and put it out there to the artists to kind of come up with some proposals. And, um, you know, we received, I think the last, after I spoke with you, we received almost 80 proposals from local Hamilton artists. Um, incredible response. It was so difficult to only select 15, um, but the selection committee was put to work. And yeah, we've selected 15 artists and they are now currently up in our storefronts here on, on Barton Street. This is uh, this is a great init- initiative, Jessica. As we talked about before, I mean, a great idea to even come up with this and make mm-hmm. you know make make use of this space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then to be recognized and get support of the city and funding for this, I mean, it must uh, like congratulations. It must make you feel good that this is moving forward. Exactly. No, I, I really appreciate that because yeah, um, we're a very small BIA. We you know kind of one of the smallest operationally in the city of Hamilton. So to get this type of funding is is great. And, you know, I do have a background in, in sort of public art and, and these types of initiatives. So it only makes sense for, for kind of me to help, to help roll this out. And it's, we've received such a great response from the artist community, from some of the businesses, from the residents. And, um, you know, I encourage you to come down and check out the pieces as well. They look really stunning in the storefronts. Um, we have all different types of mediums. We have projection art, murals, textiles, um, paintings, it, it really varies and it really, um, it's, it's, it's really nice to kind of walk down the street and whereas before you sort of see, you know, you know, paper on the windows or nothing really mm. going on to kind of see these beautiful sort of art installations activate the space. And, and that's sort of the true essence of what this funding was, was made for is to kind of bring this vibrancy back to Main Street. So, so we feel very lucky to have had this um, opportunity. 
And how many of these are up and running now? Did you say 15? Only 15. Yeah. That's, yeah. Um, you know, we wish we could have had more, but yeah, we have 15 right now and in different sort of pockets along along the BIA. We're about two kilometers long. So if you visit um, bartonvillage.ca, you can, you know, bring it up. We have a map. You can learn more about the artists who have been selected, their pieces. Um, yeah. And, and you know, we're, we've been doing some photographs. It's sort of kicked off last Thursday. And so we've been getting some great photos put up online so that people can enjoy it from from afar as well. Uh, you said that obviously you got a lot of uh, a great deal of support from artists, you know, 80 uh, opportunities or, or uh, signs of interest for this. What about getting the actual space from the person that rents it out? How difficult a process was that? Um, to be honest, that in the past, when I've done these sort of um, projects in other neighborhoods, it, it can be quite difficult to find out, you know, who the property owners are to get them to buy into this idea where, you know, please let us just use your space and we promise not to damage it. You know, it, it is, it's hard, but I have to say the property owners here on Barton were quite responsive to this. Um, you know, a lot of them truly want to lease out their space, but, you know, because of COVID and, and other reasons, you know, it hasn't been easy for them. So, so they, they've been, they responded really well to providing their space to be activated and allow these artists to come in and, and take over. So it's, it's, it's been, I've never had that experience anywhere else in, in the BI world that I've worked in. And, and I feel very lucky that it came together so easily here on Barton. And I guess it's just an obvious advantage for the person that has the building uh, when you think about it, because it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's displaying their space that they're trying to rent. Yeah. You're, you have some beautiful, you know, historical sort of buildings here on Barton street and, they're quite unique, and it really kind of helps highlight um, just how beautiful these buildings are. And even though some of them, yes, do need work, it, it, it's kind of interesting, sort of the juxtaposition of a, like a really interesting art piece up against sort of, um, you know, more of a historical building. I, I don't know. It's, it's quite interesting, and, and I encourage anyone to come down to Barton Street to, to check them out and see them for themselves. So you touched on some of them, obviously, various versions uh, of art, different installations, but give us a bit of an example of what you're seeing. Um, well, we have sort of, um, we have one individual artist who has sort of these antique saris. Um, handed down in her family and, and she has sort of embroidered poetry on them and so that's more of a textile sort of installation and, and one of the storefronts you see the beautiful sari sort of descending from the ceiling with this with this beautiful sort of poem um, embroidered on it. Uh, you have projection art from a local artist, Edgardo hmm. Moreno and um, he sort of took images based in and around Hamilton and, and that one is more of um, when it starts to get dark, you, you you need to be here for that one. Right. Um, another artist sort of took a, a sort of a spin on the old 1970s sort of rotating billboard, and they recreated one in a in a storefront, Barton Night, Barton Light. So during the day, it kind of has one image, and then if you come around in the evening time and, and witness it sort of rotating uh, around 6 p.m., you'll see it rotate from one image to the next, which which was um, it's quite the installation. Um, rug sort of rug hooking from the Hamilton craft studios, which is a, a large craft studio that opened up sort of in and around the cotton factory. Um, not too long mm. ago, they do woodworking and pottery and a bunch of, um, you know, the, the craft industry sort of, and they do the interesting rug hooking installations or a diorama. But yeah, it's, um, I have to say that the artist community in Hamilton, the proposals, each one of them was outstanding and it was so difficult to, to only select 15. I mean, if this is something we could do again in the future, I'd love to have this sort of be, you know, what every year that would be the, the ideal situation. What an absolutely great idea and what a great, a great way to focus on Barton. Uh, it's called Anything is Possible on Barton. Various uh, art installations in open spaces, vacant uh, buildings there. Check it out. Jessica Myers with us, Executive Director, Barton Village Business Improvement Area. Great job. Uh, congratulations to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I think we sort of predicted this last week, but it did take a little longer than we thought. After three months at the helm of Hockey Canada and uh, after uh, his three months at the helm, of Hockey Canada, embroiled in 
Let me start again. Uh, we know it's been happening at Hockey Canada, and the calls for uh, not only the person at the top, but uh, those uh, below uh, to step down. And it seemed that uh, Hockey Canada was kind of turning a blind eye to all of this until the sponsors started stepping away. And even when they stepped away in great numbers, it still took a while. Uh, but now uh, it has been announced that uh, the top are all gone. Let's talk to Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for your time. I hope you're doing well. I am, and I think we predicted this. Did we not, Scott? Yeah. Are you surprised it took this long, Alyssa? Because, I mean, the, yeah. there's a long list of sponsors that were dropping out last week. You know, I think that this is, and we've talked about this quite a bit with other cases, but I think this is a case of the Hockey Canada leadership refusing to acknowledge what needed to be done and digging in their heels and not stepping down and um, really just prolonging the agony for themselves. Because if you read the uh, statement that came out from Hockey Canada, it, I mean, listen, it's got its fingerprints of, and I'm sure Navigator wrote it, but um, their crisis communications firm, but it has like very, very strong and definitive language in there. So I can only imagine what the meeting was like and you know when i read earlier this weekend that first they fired the interim head which was andrea i thought okay well that's even worse you put her in his interim head she's a woman and then you put her out as a sacrificial lamb yeah and i was just shaking my head so when i see that scott smith is now gone the entire board has stepped down this is you know navigator or whomever stepping in hitting their hands on the table and going okay Game's over. This is this is past way past sudden death. You're out. Let's go. And I think that that's probably what happened, Scott. So why now? What's different now? And you know, we could say you know, with this, and, and not so much with this situation, but why is the public all of a sudden paying attention to this now? Um, nothing new here. I guess it has been building. But what do you think the trigger was here? The prolonging of the story, the refusal of um, the Hockey Canada organization to acknowledge that what they did was wrong and to act quickly. I'm sure that they were given three scenarios, the last one being the most dire, like every, you know, Scott Smith stepped down and so does the board. And they tried to prolong that as long as they could. And that's why. So it was a narrative that kept on going and kept on feeding itself, quite frankly. So and it kept on getting a little bit more juicy and salacious and a little bit more, you know, tidbit here and a tidbit there. And who knows who was leaking what to the press, to be quite honest. And, you know, something interesting, Scott, when I looked at that statement from Hockey Canada, I went onto the link of their homepage and I noticed how their communications department is set up. They've got somebody for their head office at Calgary, somebody in their head office in Toronto, I think, and then somebody in their head office in Ottawa. And, and they're all of the same level. And it seems to me that there's not enough senior guidance in terms of communications that could have really helped at that time, at that juncture. So I hope that the other thing that's moving forward is that they put a director level person up there who looks over the whole communications operation nationally, provincially, municipally um, to their stakeholders, repairing those relationships, because really that's in addition to many of the other go forward steps that they have. That's an important step. Are our attitudes changing about this stuff uh, in a post pandemic world? We don't have time for this anymore. Uh, people want action, not just talk. Or is it just this story so horrific they didn't act and they needed to? Or is it where we are also as a society now? That's a really, really good question, Scott. I think it's a little bit of everything that you're saying. And I think that one of the things that probably Hockey Canada, one of the reasons they did dig in their heels was because, listen, just because, you know, a few members of the mob are screaming, does that mean, you know, that we yeah. have to throw down the gauntlet and, you know, listen to listen to what every screaming person on the internet has to say? And that is an issue. I think that a lot of, a lot of companies have to do their analytics, do their listening and say, okay, where is all this coming from? Is this just some people who have five followers and, you know, have something to say today but nothing tomorrow or is there really some resonance to this so there is that i think they're all there also is a little tolerance now of you know sexual abuse of men and women i mean this is not just something that people whispered about you know then swept under the rug this is out now all come to the fore so i believe that there is very very little tolerance for that as as far as far as cancel culture is concerned. I think that this is something that Hockey Canada did to themselves. I often say in crisis communications, there's you have a 50-50 chance that either this happens to you, you do it to yourself. And in this case, 
it was the latter. Um, uh, obviously politicians, some have been very vocal about this, um, yet they don't seem to be vocal until the public is vocal on it. Now everybody seems to be jumping on board like they should fix it. What about politicians jumping on board this? Of course it's deplorable. Of course it needs to be fixed, but so does healthcare. Can we get back to that? You know, I always find that politicians do a pulse check of what's important to what they feel they should comment on. And um, this was one of those things, Scott. They Hmm. saw that there was no downside in supporting what should really happen at Hockey Canada. And it was, you know, from the prime minister on down. And I mean, you know, someone like um, an MP like Anthony Housefather, well, he's a lawyer. So when he was going through it, he certainly had a, a very definitive point of view. And there were some other politicians that just came out and said, you know, I support, um, you know, what should happen. Even, I believe, Rona Ambrose from the Conservative Party, former interim leader, wrote uh, an op-ed. I believe it was in the, um, might have been in the National Post, I think, or the Globe and Mail. So a lot of people jump on these sort of safe narratives so they can, A, get their name out in the media, B, align themselves with a situation that it has more upside to their, um, up, uh, you know, upside to their brand than, than mm. downside. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. As always, Alyssa, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, I guess what this comes down to, you don't go on your company machine and surf porn. This is what we're about to learn right now. Uh, do not use remotely working or even in the office. Some people would do this in the office. Hey, wasn't there a politician that was watching porn on his laptop in the house one time? Or is it the ledge? I can't remember. Uh, anyway, uh, many Ontario companies will soon need to disclose to staff whether they are electronically monitoring employees' activities. Uh, in April, Ontario became the first province to pass new transparency laws as part of the Working for Workers Act, requiring companies with 25 or more to create written policy clearly outlining whether employees' use of computers, cell phones, GPS, whatever, are being tracked. To talk more about all of this, Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist. He's with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hello, Scott. I am. Even better now that I'm here. Thanks for having me. So, you know, uh, most computers I've seen, i got a laptop that's company-issued right here. As soon as you fire it up, the, in great big green letters, it says, there is no right to privacy on this system. Uh, is that all we yeah. need to know, or is it go beyond that? Well, it should be as simple as that. And I, I don't think we need a legislation, a piece of legislation from the Ontario government. In this case, they're calling it Working for Worker Workers Act. Um, we don't need that. We should know this by now. We should know that anytime we log on to a corporate provided computing resource, whether it's a laptop or a phone or a GPS device or a tablet or whatever, that that our inf- our, our data, our activities, everything is being tracked or is potentially being tracked. And that information can and will be used in various forms, possibly against us. Uh, that anyone would assume that is not the case, you got to be super naive in 2022. Uh, and so what this legislation does is it puts it in front of everyone. It makes companies accountable for telling their employees, yes, we're tracking you. Here is how we're tracking you. Here's why we're tracking you. This is what we're going to do with the information. And we just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. And that, to me, is a good thing. Make it visible. Make it transparent. Make it obvious. Because clearly, up until now, there are way too many people, like the the porn-surfing politician you talked about in the intro, who clearly don't understand the, the, the dividing line between personal computing resources and corporate computing resources. And they get into trouble because of it. All right. The privacy issue is one thing. And as you mentioned, we should all be knowing that by now, being on company equipment and such. That being said, privacy is one thing. You don't go do things on with resources you shouldn't be. However, keeping track of it or monitoring uh, is is a different story, is it not? It is. And, you know, so, for example, my company has every right to know that if they're going to pay me a certain amount and my, my, my contract dictates that I should be working within certain hours, in much the same way that they would know when I clocked in at the office and clocked out, uh, they, they should be able to use, and in fairness, use the technology to say, yeah, Carmi showed up at work at 8.30 and uh, he left at 5 o'clock and he does that every day. And if, if I start coming in late and leaving early, they have every right to use that information against me. That's fair. What isn't fair is... 
then using the webcam on the laptop that they provided me to essentially make sure that I'm sitting in front of the computer every last minute of that day hmm. and that I'm in my home office, that I haven't decided to take my laptop to, I don't know, maybe the deck out back because the weather is good or I you know go to a local Starbucks because I just want to change the pace and they've got really great Wi-Fi. Remote work allows us to do that, but there's some employee, employers who are using the advanced technologies on these devices to be even more invasive, not just make sure that they're at work, but then dictate exactly what they're doing and uh, while they're at work and punish them if they don't meet those standards. There's a line, and it's a very subtle line, and those that has to be proper and fair, protect the employer's rights, but at the same, same time, protect the employee's rights too. So what are or could uh, employers be looking at that employees may not even be aware of? Uh, they could be looking at uh, all the apps that you're currently using on your device. And this is especially important now, Scott, because uh, there's we're seeing blurring between corporate and personal resources. It used to be you went into an office, you used a computer that the company had bought on the compute on the company provided network. So everything was pretty obvious. All the hardware, all the infrastructure is theirs. Well, now I'm, I'm sitting here in my home office. I have a corporate provided computer as well as a personal pr- computer. They're both sitting on a network that I've arranged to have access to, and I have other personal devices on. I'm using my personal computer to access some corporate apps and services. Sometimes I use my corporate computer to kind of cross that line as well. And so I know, full. so for, so for example, it, it, it isn't just the one device. That corporate computer could also be looking at what other devices does Carmi have on his network? What apps are they running? Are they okay? Is he using them during core business hours? Is that a problem? Um, you know, is somebody watching too much Netflix on that home network? You can tell that as well. And I certainly never want to have that conversation with my employer. But in theory, at least, it's possible for them to know that degree or that granularity of activity when you're working from home or working remotely. So uh, one thing to be doing it on their company computer or laptop, but uh, also if you on your home PC go into their system, how much access do they have through your home system? A hundred percent because Mm. they are tracking. So if I sign into a corporate resource, uh, the back end of that resource, so that app or that platform or that service or whatever, that's also going to track my information and it'll go on file somewhere. Um, so there really is, the, there's there's this bleeding of the line between personal and corporate. And I think we have to recognize that just because an app is, inst- a, a company app is installed on your phone doesn't mean that they can't see what's going on in the app as well as on the device that it's sitting on. So for example, if you're, you, if you're on your, if you're using that phone, to say maybe use Zoom for work, and you're also using it to maybe look up the you know the job mar- the job market on the mm-hmm. Indeed platform. Um, there may be a way for that to bleed over, so you may want to be a little bit more careful about separating church and state, making sure that what you do personally is strictly limited to personal technology. And what you do corporately is on the other side of that line. It's going to be fascinating to see at what point society cares, because we talk all the time about, ah, no one cares about cameras, no one cares about this. Then all of a sudden, (laughs) this, this might be a different story. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Always fun. Carmi, thanks for the time. Be well. Really appreciate being here, Scott. Thank you. All right. uh, Unless you've been under a rock, uh, you're aware that what's been going on at Hockey Canada and um, sponsors that in the last week have just literally uh, fallen like uh, rotten fruit off a tree. It's amazing how uh, many sponsors have backed away. Bauer announcing, uh, I guess, the latest as equipment supplier that they're not going to be participating. And now, of course, the news coming down that uh, finally Hockey Canada has got the word and um, the board and, and everybody that uh, I guess people wanted to resign, have resigned, and have finally stepped down. Let's bring in Stephen Ellis, sports journalist, author uh, uh, author with The Daily Faceoff, and here now. Stephen, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, everybody, I, I'm sure everybody agrees this is uh, pretty disgusting, and I can see a lot of parents, and you know, I'm a parent as both boy and girl in hockey, or did at one point, and, and certainly annoyed at what's going on and disgusted that they're using this money to uh, for a slush fund to help out these sorts of uh, sexual assault allegations and such. But are you surprised that it took so long for Hockey Canada to react to this? It seemed like they were just doubling down. Absolutely. This was something where... Uh, Scott Smith was just became the, the CEO this summer, I believe in July. So uh, he hasn't even held that role for too long. But uh, people are asking for his resignation and a lot of others um, in early July. So uh, 
it's something where I think that was a lot of the distrust here. You know, there's it's not like any new allegations have come forth in the last couple of days that have resulted in all these sponsors and all these other groups to no longer be involved. But it, it truly felt like in this case, it took until the sponsors left. And I think that was definitely the biggest issue here and why there's so much distrust with Hockey Canada and how they've moved forward, if at all, where – this should have been done weeks ago. It was clear that the the way uh, the management was going with this, um, they couldn't move forward and people didn't trust them. So why did it take so long? And, and that's the question I think everyone's got right now. Do you think it's going to take quite a while before some of these sponsors come back? It'll be interesting to see because a lot. some of them have said we're no longer going to support Hockey Canada at all. Others have said we're going to continue sponsoring the women's team and the Paralympic teams. But, um, you know, this, there's a chance this has a trickle-down effect to um, the the minor hockey associations. But it'll be interesting to see because I think if any of these sponsors are to come back, they need to know that the new management is going to make change and there will be, um, the, there will be progress going forward because, you know, these people are still going to be involved with uh, – like the, the board of governors or the, the board of directors that uh, are stepping down, they're still going to be involved for the next little bit. And there's still going to be some questions hockey Canada has to answer. So uh, do I think they'll come back? I think eventually, but uh, I think right now it's, you know, until they've got the leadership proving that they can take things forward and, and not have situations like this all the time, uh, that it will be uh, something where the sponsors will come back. Why do you think there's this outrage now? What's different now? A lot of it just, you know, just A, coming to light, but B, just seeing kind of um, just the fact that we're the, this, the big case that kind of sprung all this was the 2018 uh, alleged sexual assault in London, where um, it, it, it was kind of, they tried to keep it private. It wasn't until it got known that they, they paid off the alleged victim um, earlier this year that, okay, there's, there's something here and people started to become very aware of all this. And then there's more, there's rumor, there's a 2003 team that's now been um, called out. And then there's been rumors, you know, are there other situations here? And then Hockey Candle themselves said they believe it was around $9 million in paid out in sexual assault um, settlements. Like, when people start to see that on numbers and see that publicly, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, this is serious. And I think the reason why there's been a lot of focus on the last week or so is because they did go and talk. Uh, they were grilled by members of parliament and other uh, high-ranking officials. And we hear um, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talking about it. Uh, so when all these high-ranking officials talk, I think people are starting to just to take more notice. How damaging is this to Hockey Canada? How long does it take to recover from this? What is the damage? Well, this will be tough. Obviously, there was no real support from the public on the on the the management side. They are going to change that, so it'll be interesting to see kind of how they move forward. It's uh, who runs hockey in Canada is not exactly an easy position to fill, and it could be something. Maybe it's multiple people. Maybe it's a while till we find out who it is. And uh, you know, they just got to do it right. And I think that today was a good step. Um, having the the CEO and the board of directors step down, uh, that's a good step towards what they can um, do long term. But they still got to you know, hire people for these jobs and they still got to mm. see how that works. So we st- it's still a while till we'll find out kind of how this will work. But um, it's something where people don't trust Hockey Canada. It'll be interesting to see what player participation is like this year, where I, I, would as- I would assume there's a lot of parents are saying we want nothing to do with hockey this year. Uh, how long do you think or how difficult or long do you think this transition is going to take? Because as you said, it's going to take a while to fill these positions. This is this is going to be a long transition, don't you think? For sure, because like unlike in the past where Scott Smith kind of started at a smaller role with Hockey Canada and worked his way up to become the president and CEO, but uh, if for this to work, you can't just keep promoting from within because I think that's part of the issue here um, was that this this was a culture that needed to change. So it's got to be someone fresh, and uh, the election for the the board will be in December. Uh, we that we don't know kind of when they will take over. We just assume probably for the new year. Uh, and then we don't know when the CEO situation will be figured out. So it will take a while. And uh, I think in this case, it's it, they have to be patient. They have to get the right people in charge because you can't have this happen again. What does Hockey Canada have to show Canadians? What do they have to display to Canadians here? Uh, for one, they got to show that they're very serious about sexual assault allegations, and because uh, the the way it was being reported, it was like, okay, well, the 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 alleged victim, uh, you know, they they got the settlement, and they were nothing was going to happen to those players. And if 
you know, if this situation did happen, um, obviously it's not been proven in court yet. Uh, then it gets like, okay, well, you didn't prove like it, you, you didn't do enough to to penalize these players. And the NHL, they've been doing their own investigation. So uh, I think they got to show that they're taking things like this seriously. They're not using funds to cover things up. It's got to be transparent, and uh, they got to show that they're they're serious about teaching the players and everyone involved. Like this is serious stuff. You can't keep doing this. I just got an interesting note. Where are the parents in all of this? Well, I'm guessing the parents aren't really all that aware of it until it's too late and Hockey Canada steps in and there's lawsuits and people charged. Um, that being said, before it's too late, I know organizations like the Hamilton Bulldogs have tried to get ahead of this and are, are educating players as part of their, uh, as part of their uh, program about all this stuff. Is that where teams need to go as well? Or, or the organization itself. For sure. And there's been stories about other organizations kind of doing the same thing. And kudos to all that are doing that. Um, you know, this is something where you're, we're talking in a lot of cases, this is involving teenagers and young people. And uh, th- this is this is serious stuff. These are serious crimes if they're committed and things like that. So you got to make sure you're teaching and say, like, you can't do this. And it's it's it could not only screw your own career up, but it could ruin lives. And for, for everyone involved. So uh, it's something where, yeah, I, the teams need to be putting a lot of pressure on it and say, we got to start doing things like that. That just only helps your organization get stronger. So uh, just, just if you're boiling it down to that, why not? Uh, Hockey Canada obviously must have thought they could get away with this. That's why they kept sort of hiding it and, and, and digging in their heels. Uh, are things different now? Are we looking at all this stuff differently? They, We hope so. Uh, because obviously we're still kind of in this situation where we're still finding out more details. We still don't know enough about either the 2018 or the 2003 case. We don't, I think, even know how many players were involved in 2003. So um, it, it's something where, it, it, yeah, I think it's going to be um, – they, they got to be a lot more transparent and you know a lot of this stems to the world juniors which is a huge event for canada and you know it's evolving teenage um boys and things like that and um you know how teenagers can be but that's no excuse when you're going yeah. out there and doing what you're doing so um they, they got to continue to be transparent and making it clear that this is not this this can't happen going forward Stephen Ellis with his sports journalist, author with the daily face-off talking about hockey canada and where they are today Stephen, thanks for the time be well Absolutely. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As we've heard, Ontario workplaces are now required or will be there uh, to have their electronic monitoring policies uh, established and in place as of today. And you've got to be able to disclose that to staff what you're watching. Let's bring in Mackenzie Irwin, uh, lawyer specializing in employment law with Sempiro Tamarkin LLP and with us now. Mackenzie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. So what can employers uh, look at? What can they not? What are they looking at that maybe employees aren't aware of? Yeah. So, I mean, that's the, that's, that's not exactly what this, uh, this legislation addresses. It does not actually say what employers can and cannot monitor. But uh, the whole purpose of this le- legislation is is about transparency. So it's really only um, requiring employers to be transparent with their employees and advise them when they're monitoring them, how they're monitoring them, and then what they're using that data for. So it's 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 pretty tricky. It's it's a good distinction to make because it doesn't actually give employees any right to pri- privacy that they didn't already have. So, uh, again, we, we've talked about this earlier on in the show and, you know, many uh, company computers, you go in, laptop, whatever, the first thing it'll say is there's no right to privacy on this system. And obviously, I think a lot of people know that, that are working uh, remotely or working on a company computer or a company system. Uh, so privacy is one thing. What about tracking, though? Uh, where does that cross the line? Yeah, again, it's really that, that those, that's another tracking, you know, what they're doing, what keystrokes, there's certain softwares that they can download onto, uh, their work computers that track, you know, your mouse movement throughout the day. All of that data is, um, well, as long as the employer is collecting it for a legitimate business purpose and has advised their employees that they're, um, you know, they don't have a right to privacy in their, in their work computers. And that intrusion, the tracking and what they're collecting is as minimal as possible to achieve that legitimate business purpose, then likely the employer is allowed to do it. But 
the, again, it's not the point of the legislation. It's really about um, employees now will know by the, you know by, in, within 30 days once they get those policies from their employers, they'll know what their employer is and is not tracking. And so then having that knowledge, they can take that knowledge and information to a lawyer to kind of determine, okay, is this something that my employer is allowed to do? And so I think that's going to be, we're going to get a huge wave of, um, of people looking into what, uh, what their employer is tracking and whether or not that's, that's legal. Because you would assume that, and maybe that's wrong to assume, but most employees, or maybe they don't know that if they're on a company computer, everything is being tracked. Would they not know that or assume that already? Or now they have to be told? Well, yeah, so that's not necessarily necessarily the case. Um, so if, if your employer isn't actually tracking anything, all the employer needs to do by um, within 30 days of today is, is, is let them know that, you know, sorry, employees, we're not actually tracking anything. So not every employer has the ability or capacity to really track certain things, especially for employees that are working from home. Mm-hmm. But I, I think, I mean, it's, it's a fair assumption to, to say, you know, if you're using your work phone, your work phone is for work, work purposes. It's right. not to be used for personal purposes. It's not right. really to be used outside of work hours. So you should you should assume that that you don't have a right to privacy um, and you shouldn't be using your work phone or computer for personal use. But that's not necessarily fair to say that it's an assumption everyone should know because mm. not every not every employer is doing it and not every employee knows that. Uh, is this more an issue now in a post global pandemic world with so much remote work? Yeah, I think certainly throughout the pandemic when over, I think at one point, 40% of the workforce was working from home in Ontario, uh, that most employers, they did, a lot of employers did implement some sort of electronic monitoring system without telling their employees. So that's, you know, doing that without their knowledge, that's the issue that this legislation is trying to get at, Hmm. just to make sure that employers are, are upfront with their employees and now they're required to tell their employees that they're doing that. Uh, so what should employees take from this? Uh, like, does, is really anything changing here? What should the average employee know now? Well, so, yeah, now within 30 days, you should receive your employer's uh, policy. And you should know now what, what how, and when they're uh, monitoring you and what they're using that information for. You can now, if you think, you know, hmm, maybe, maybe that's a bit crossing the line, um, they, they can take that and have it reviewed by an employment lawyer or, or a privacy lawyer. But for now, it's really, the, the, the legislation doesn't really have, any, have much teeth to it. There's, not, there's no recourse. It's, the legislation doesn't give you any complaint, uh, way to file a complaint or to um, push back on it. So it's going to be really incumbent on each individual employee to take a look and decide, hmm, is this something that I'm will, you know, is this something that's proper and is it something that I'm willing to accept in my employment? So basically, if you're working from home and you're only on your company computer for like two hours a day and your company says, hey, we have a feeling you're only working two hours a day, that is now a, obviously something that has to be transparent. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think it's really important to note here that employers obviously are collecting this information for a reason. Um, and if you're terminated because of any information that they're collecting through this electronic monitoring, you know, likely if you're only on the, on the uh, computer for a couple hours a day, it's still not likely not just cause. And, you're, and if you're terminated for that reason, you're still mm-hmm. likely entitled to severance. So absolutely, it's something that's going to be, become more transparent with, with employees. But if you've been terminated as a result of some sort of electronic monitoring, you should certainly have your termination, your specific situation uh, reviewed by an employment lawyer because it's likely you're still entitled to severance. Mackenzie Irwin with us, specializing in employment law with Semfuro Tamarkin LLP. Uh, workplace uh, transparency laws changing and what they can and cannot monitor and, well, more so you being aware of it. Mackenzie, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You as well. Thanks so much for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton.
Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Been talking about Hockey Canada all day today, uh, and last week for that matter, when uh, sponsors started dropping like flies um, after announcements of sludge, uh, slush funds and such uh, going to pay lawsuits, alleged lawsuits and such. Uh, obviously, sponsors have spoken up, and um, even today, uh, another one, Bauer, uh, steps away as Hockey Canada announces uh, big changes at the top and their leadership. But what does this mean for the myriad of sponsors that have been uh, tied to this sport, tied to this organization for a long period of time? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. I'm doing great, thank you. Glad to be with you. Marvin, are you surprised it took uh, Hockey Canada so long to react this way? Because it seemed last week, man, there was a ton of sponsors that left. You thought you'd hear something by then, but um, obviously now over the weekend and today. Uh, are you surprised they they punted this down the, the field, per se? Well, let's, let me try it this way, Scott, if I can. A trust is a commodity that takes a lifetime to build but can be lost in a heartbeat. Hmm. And what's happened in the case of Hockey Canada is... Um, they seem to miss the boat on this. They missed this boat back in the summer at the first hearing when there was this uh, investigation into the scandal. The most important thing here is not the funding of this. It is to make sure there are no more scandals out there. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's still the case today. Uh, Yes, we're not happy that you had a slush fund. No, we're not happy that there were, I think, five of them over the last 20 years. What it tells us is you're not trying to stop them from happening, all you're trying to do is find a way to fund them. And that's not the right answer here. So once you'd lost the trust, I saw no way of the existing CEO and the existing board coming back. And so I have felt for all this time there was going to have to be replacement at the top. They've gone halfway. They've now got rid of some people. They announced today they won't be replacing the top people until, until December. And I'll tell you this as well. When you go to replace them, you need to find somebody as the new chair of the board who brings instant trust, who brings instant credibility. I'll just throw out a silly example, but former Prime Minister uh, uh, Stephen Harper, who's written books about hockey, he's a a lover of hockey, if he were to step in as chair of the board of the new Hockey Canada, and then within days of becoming the chair of the board, put out a four-point manifesto and said, here are the steps we're taking to make sure there's not one more a sex scandal involving uh, hockey players in Canada, starting at the grassroots, moving up. That's the kind of action that's needed to win those sponsors back. But none of that will happen to December. You mentioned Bauer's gone today. If there are any left, and I'm not sure there are many yeah. sponsors left, whatever's left, I think they'll all go away, and then you're going to have to win all that trust back. Uh, is this organization and everyone involved in it have to show that they are being proactive? In other words, they have programs in place. And, and again, not so much the slush fund, but the slush fund just admits you've got a problem that you're not dealing with. Um, right. So do they uh, over? Do they need to announce what sort of programming, what they're going to do, how what they're going to add to this program in order to put an end to this or, or change the culture? Yeah. So, if, if Scott, if I can dare make this a little more complicated – Clearly, this all begins at the grassroots level. So there's a Hamilton Minor Hockey Association and a Burlington and an Oakville Mm -hmm. and a Toronto. Then you roll up to the provincial associations, and then there's a national overseeing body. That's Hockey Canada. To date, no one has lost faith with the provincial organizations. No one has lost faith with the local ones. All of these allegations have been laid against the players of the Canadian national team, not at the lower levels. Mm -hmm. So two things. The other ones have have watched this, and I guarantee you at the provincial level, perhaps even at the municipal level, you're going to see some statements from them. Here are steps that we're taking to make sure this doesn't happen at our level. Also, what you're going to see happen is that some of these sponsors aren't really walking away from hockey altogether. I suspect they'll wind up supporting these provincial and municipal organizations until such time as Hockey Canada gets their act together. But certainly at Hockey Canada's level, After replacing the CEO, after replacing the board, bringing in some really sterling people, within days of taking over, they must come out with an action plan, not about slush funds, but how we're going to take this seriously and stop it from happening again, including, for instance, if you're a player and you're accused of this or you're found guilty of this, you're gone. I don't care if you're Wayne Gretzky caliber. Hmm. You screw up like this, it's not tolerated, as opposed to we'll buy it off and, and sweep it under the carpet.
When do the sponsors realize uh, or, or, or accept that their brand is now uh, can be alongside of Hockey Canada's? How long, like, as you mentioned, uh, it takes years to build these up. It comes right. crashing down in a split second. How long does it take for them to come back? So first, let me use some extreme language. Today, being associated with Hockey Canada is toxic. T-O-X-I-C, toxic to your brand image. It's the last thing you want, regardless of who the organization is. It, it paints you with the same brush as Hockey Canada. So you must be seen as separating yourself and saying, this is something I don't believe in. Now, let's say in December, Hockey Canada comes out with this really sterling program. I don't think you're going to see them rush back the day after that. I suspect they're going to say, well, words are nice. Actions speak louder than words. Hmm. Now the clock is ticking. We're starting to rebuild trust. A week go by, a month go by, six months go by. But I suspect in the meantime, things like uh, hockey championships, sponsorships at that level are going to be very hard to come by. And they're going to have to rebuild this over the course of two, three years, I would think. Uh, what type? What type of impact does that do for Hockey Canada? What so- sort of impact does that have on this organization uh, having to now yeah. woo back all of those sponsors? Let's see if I can help you a little bit. The annual budget for Hockey Canada is sixty-three million dollars. The amount of money they got from sponsors was seventeen million. So you can do the math quickly in your head. That's about thirty percent of the total. Eight million dollars of funding from the government is also frozen. And also happening, the provincial organization said, we're not going to remit our money. So this is an organization today that could be teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. This is, again, why they had to take this action. Now, I think the first ones you'll see come back will be the provincial organizations. They'll say, okay, I've met the people at the top. They've got their heads screwed on correctly. They're doing the right things. That money will go. Probably next up might actually be government money if they put forward the right plans. The sponsors are going to take longer because you can't associate yourself with something toxic. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, talking about Hockey Canada and the loss of sponsorship, what that means for the organization moving forward. Marvin, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. All right. Um, lots going on with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and of late. Uh, a couple of, of, of interesting points uh, that are obviously ramping up this uh, this situation. And, and we could be at a turning point here, whether it's uh, Russia now calling up another 300,000 troops or, or drafting them, uh, as well as uh, annexing four more regions of Ukraine, which they basically the Ukrainians took back. Um, uh, pipeline, the uh, Nord Stream pipeline, uh, sabotage there. Road to Crimea, sabotage there. They're also talking that that could be related to uh, issues in Germany regarding uh, their train infrastructure. So are we at a turning point here? What is happening? Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, a, a PhD program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Jack, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you're well, too. Uh, thank you so much. Considering where we are, and as I mentioned, the last few things that have happened in the last week or two, uh, are we at a turning point here? It, it, it seems as if this is coming to a head. Is it? I think it would be premature to say this is a turning point. It uh, it, it is certainly uh, a worsening situation from Mr. Putin's point of view. Uh, on the other hand, he is... Uh, he is sufficiently invested in this, in this course of action that it's uh, it's unlikely to see him uh, backing down, no matter how many obstacles we put in his way. Uh, now, President Zelensky, as he has uh, since the beginning of all of this, requesting air support. We know that that's a fine line. Does anything change now? I think we may see air defenses uh, from from the uh, from the West, but not. Uh, not uh, not aircraft with uh, NATO pilots actually flying them. That would uh, that would cross a red line that uh, the, the West's leaders have been careful to draw between military aid to Ukraine and ensuring that uh, that we're not actually directly engaged with Russian forces. That's our red line or the Allies' red line. What's the red line for Putin? Well, that's tough to say, uh, and. It's in his interest to make it seem that he's uh, that he's more dangerous, perhaps, than he really is in the short term, with this uh, this nuclear saber rattling that he's indulged in in recent days. 
he has certainly shown that he's uh, that he's frustrated. I think the uh, the the massive wave of uh, of bombings and strafings and drone strikes the last two days have indicated that uh, it it uh, must have been a rather bitter pill for him to swallow on his. Uh, 70th birthday rather than taking a victory lap he's having to uh, deal with the sabotage of the Crimea bridge so he's uh, he's frustrated he's having difficulties problems are mounting for him but uh, that doesn't mean we're at a turning point just yet so why is he ramping things up this way i mean is this reaction to uh, you talked about the 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 bridge to crimea and such um is this reaction that uh, well even in the uh four regions that they annexed uh ukraine went back in and took over uh, is this reaction to the aggression of ukraine uh, it's a reaction to ukraine's military success in repelling russian invasion yeah uh, putin has uh, has 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 really got a lot staked on the notion that this was uh, that this was going to be a relatively uh, quiet and uh, and easy conquest. It hasn't turned out that way. Uh, uh, public disquiet is mounting, although it's muffled by uh, strict censorship and uh, punitive anti dissent laws in Russia. But uh, the public is uh, is increasingly unhappy. I mean, there was sort of an unspoken deal between Putin and the Russian public that he would restore Russia as a great power uh, without asking too much from them by way of sacrifice. Now, with the uh, the mobilization, he is asking for a lot by way of sacrifice. And I suspect that once the body bags start coming home in large numbers, uh, things will uh, turn even more sour for him. Uh, so he unloads this weekend, and 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 obviously uh, a lot of damage in Ukraine. What now? Doesn't he have to keep backing that up? Can he keep backing that up? Is this taking it to another level? Well, he can keep backing it up as long as he wants to, and as long as the uh, the Russian stockpile of uh, of military hardware holds out. Uh, he is uh, he is relying upon, uh, unfortunately, from his point of view, a military that is not particularly supportive, that is uh, has, is not characterized by very strong morale, uh, that is afloat on seas of vodka, and uh, most of whose members would just as soon desert as risk their risk their lives in Ukraine. So how do you explain the sabotage? Uh, any thoughts on the pipeline? Any thoughts on the road to uh, this bridge to Crimea? What uh, What's happening here? Well, there are uh, there are all sorts of theories out there for both, but I haven't yet seen any any uh, clear intelligence linking, uh, linking Ukraine to either one. Uh, and keep in mind, uh, Putin has uh, domestic opponents. He has opponents in other countries as well. Uh, it's tough to say, and I wouldn't want to prejudge either incident. Uh, with that being said, with these incidents, uh, are attitudes in Russia changing? Are Is Russian society, Russian civilians changing their opinion of this? There are some indications that it is. Uh, for example, the, uh, the public is now tuning out the official state-sponsored news broadcast and tuning in a, a Russian news network that's broadcasting from exile. So there's uh, there's uh, discontent with the official version of how things are going. There is, I suspect, a growing realization that they are not going all that well, and that is going to lead to uh, further problems down the line for Putin. Is Putin thinking, and, you know, obviously we can't put ourselves in his mind, you know, as long as I just keep bombing the way that i just did this past weekend eventually they're just going to give up is that his plan it could very well be his plan i mean the the problem is that uh, while he has not won uh, a victory as of yet uh, ukraine is still on the defensive very much on the uh, the, the defensive strategically even if it has launched some uh, uh, offensive operations so he has uh, he could probably rationalize pursuing the uh, the course that he's chosen. Uh, is anybody asking at this point, uh, Jack, if you know if Russia spoke, was supposed to be a superpower? This was all supposed to be over in a couple of days, uh, and here we are stretching it out into uh, almost eight months. If it's not, um, 
if he can't take Ukraine, who the heck can he take? Is this this is hardly a superpower if he can't go back and take a country which he always thought was his anyway. Well, even at the height of the Cold War, uh, the Soviet Union, while it had a very large army, did not have a particularly uh, technologically sophisticated one or uh, or a particularly impressive arsenal, except for the fact that it has nuclear weapons. The old Soviet Union was basically a third world country with nukes. So uh, is there any reason to, I mean, just because he does have nuclear uh, 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 weaponry, does that mean it's advanced? Does that mean it can be successful or does the word nuke just scare the heck out of everybody? I think it, it, uh, it, it encourages caution, rightly so. I'm not sure it scares anybody. People realize that he, his words should not be taken at face value. I mean, Mr. Putin is a great one for uh, for bluff and bluster and uh, and threats. Whether he'd actually follow through on them is another story. What do you see happening short term here, Jack? We only got about 30 seconds left. I don't see things winding down short term. I think this is going to continue for a while. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Scott Radley is with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after your 6 o'clock news. And you can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. You know, that, that song that Adam Sandler, you come in, what happened to Adam Sandler? Like he was Happy Gilmore and The Wedding Singer and a few other like great, fun, classic movies. And now it's like oh, everything from Adam Sandler now stinks. What happened? I don't know, because I never really thought he was that funny anyway. His early stuff. I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like Jim Carrey. I don't know. Jim Carrey you know when what? he first started, it was great, and then it, maybe we just got tired of it. I don't know. I think David Letterman said it best when he said, "How can you be so? How can you make so much money just uh, speaking goofy, that's just it. talking?" <laughs> really, that's what it was. I digress. There's lots of uh, uh, Adam Sandler fans out there that just absolutely love the guy. All right, uh, big story today, of course, is Hockey Canada. We've talked about this before. Obviously, uh, uh, allegations and, and, and payoffs and, and what have you. Uh, they were supposed to be dealing with this, obviously not quick enough. Sponsors uh, falling like flies last week. Are you surprised it took this long for them to um, to acknowledge this as opposed to doubling down as they were last week uh what you mean tripling down or quadrupling yeah. down is such a thing yeah. um I, you know i don't know because when you and i talked last week one of the things that i recall saying and you know uh, i'd have to go back and listen if this is exactly what i said but as i recall was clearly they are not being all that affected by sponsors bailing out it's going to be when the players when organizations say you're no longer representing us as we started to see with um quebec hockey pulled out and i think either new brunswick or nova scotia one of the smaller ones but and ontario one league so you start to get this thing where your whole raison d'etre stops to exist now the sponsors for sure have an impact and and you know the one thing that clearly seems to have happened here is a combination but a, a critical mass of sponsors where now it's even even you know it's not even just tim hortons it's not even whatever it was bauer hockey which is one yeah. of the biggest names in the yeah. sport saying we're out there there does come a moment of critical mass and, and the other thing and here, here's the part about this that you know it, it's been so puzzling to me in some ways is i understand that many of these people this is not their full-time job now i haven't done a whole bunch but at a certain point, if you're on the board, are you not just saying, heck with this? You know, I may think I'm in the right, but I don't need this in my life. Yeah. Like, why am I doing this? And I think there comes a point, too, where you're looking at a bunch of these people saying, not only do I not need the hassle, do I really want this on my resume right now? Hmm, for all the point. other things I do in my life. And so... I mean, I, I think it was inevitable. I just, I, I wasn't sure what the moment was going to be. Clearly, we found it. What does Hockey Canada need to do to regain the trust of the sponsors and Canadians first and then the sponsors? Uh, what what do they need to do? What sort of programs? I mean, you got to do more than just pay lip service to this. What do they need to do? It's a great question. Um, 
you know, I don't know that we want Hockey Canada to become, uh, pardon the wording for those who get offended by this, but I don't know that we want Hockey Canada to become so entirely woke that it no longer is about hockey, but it's about issues like that. I think mm-hmm. it has to be a balance where they say we want to do the hockey stuff right but also make sure that we are serious about things that come up. And rather than having, you know, we heard about these slush funds for sexual assault allegations and stuff. Like let's, Mm -hmm. let's look at these things really seriously and weed out the people that are bad people and not have any suggestion or hint or, or anything that there's a a, a soft spot or a a blind spot for that kind of thing within the organization. I I think, I think, I mean, ultimately, Scott, I don't think that most people look, there's always going to be some who aren't even involved in hockey. I don't think most people want hockey Canada to not be dealing with hockey issues first. Mm -hmm. It's ultimately a hockey organization, an umbrella organization overseeing hockey. So I don't think people want this just to become a preachy, very progressive in the sense of, you know, everything is left-wing politics. I don't think they want that, but I think they want an organization they believe takes problem issues really seriously. Every organization needs a code of ethics. Every organization needs a set of rules. You you must abide by this or else. Um, Is there any way to get ahead of this? Well, every, and I'm sure, like, I haven't done the digging into this. I, I, I guarantee you they have a code of ethics. Mm. The question is, every organization also, um, you know, there are times, there are circumstances, no two situations are exactly the same. And, you know, so how do you interpret your code of ethics? How do you, how do you deal with these? Do you, you know, do, do, do you go, do you tend to, trust the accuser more than the accused do you tend to i mean like there's a million different ways that you can look at this and it's not going to be an easy thing because you know as well as i do scott that hockey canada has been at the center of this maelstrom but you could point to every other sport every other sport has coaches that have done inappropriate things this is not unique to hockey we talk about the culture of hockey look there's a culture of football there's a culture of soccer there's a culture of baseball there's a culture of dance there's a culture of cheerleading there are bad actors in every single activity. We know that. So it's how are you going to deal with those bad actors and how do you show that the tolerance for such a thing doesn't exist? And I, Scott think, I think once you've solved that, and I don't know how you do that, but I think once you've solved that, people say, all right, fine, good. Now we can talk about hockey again instead of the other stuff. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, have a great show. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. On the Hockey Canada issue, here's what Mr. Lowe had to say. A transparent investigation is required immediately by the new governing body of Hockey Canada. This new governing body should be made from the sponsors who pulled out. In my two choices, Sheldon Kennedy and Haley Wickenheiser, if they accept. 